0: 1 Thessalonians 5, we're going to look at verses 12 through 22, and we'll pick up the last few verses next Sunday, at least that's the plan. As I was preparing this message about Friday, I realized this would make a really good month's worth of sermons, and I'm going to try to cram it all into one this morning, so you might want to pray for me in that. But as I was studying this passage, I realized that where we left off last week in verse 11, is really the springboard for what we're going to look at today. So in order to understand rightly these commands, and by the way, we're getting ready to look at 16 rapid-fire commands that Paul gives as he's closing out this letter. And I'm going to try to bring those together as one. But the basis for this is verse 11 of our text. And it says, Therefore, encourage one another, And build one another up just as you are doing. That statement, that command was predicated upon the soon coming of Christ for his church. Because Christ is coming again, because our king is coming, we as the people of God are to be encouraging one another and building one another up and continuing in that ministry of encouragement and edification until the day when the Lord comes. And so what Paul does in these verses that we're going to look at this morning is he talks with us about what does it look like for us to be a people who are encouraging and edifying and building one another up in love until the day our king comes for us. What does this look like? Boots on the ground kind of stuff. What does it look like to actually do the work of encouraging and edifying one another? I want to share with you a little bit of an illustration that I think will hopefully guide our time this morning and our thinking about what we're talking about with these 16 rapid fire commands that we're about to look at. Three weeks ago, uh, this was the scene for our Puerto Rico mission team. Uh, July the 2nd, they were scheduled to hop a plane. I think 1.30 in the afternoon was their flight time. They arrived at the airport uh, about 9.30 that morning and they're doing the waiting game and then, and then you know, expecting 1.30, we're going to be on a plane. We're going to be headed back to uh, Nashville where they would take their buses and, and vehicles and, and come home. That was the plan. About 1.25, they learned that their flight had been canceled. And so here they are in this picture waiting there for news of what comes next. Expecting to go home, they are now waiting, still expecting we're going to get home. It's just not going to look exactly like we thought that it would look. Now good news is they did make it home. 9.30 that night they did catch a flight that ended up in Fort Lauderdale, then in Nashville. And eventually I think my wife arrived home about. 30, 3 o'clock maybe, maybe later than that. I don't know. It was sometime in the early wee hours. I was well asleep by then, but that was the case. And I want you to think about this morning, what we do while we're waiting, especially when situations like this, the waiting was fairly unexpected. They didn't know they were going to have an extra eight hours in the airport, which could have been even longer than that. So what did they do? Well, for some of them, like this couple that we love, they caught up on a little sleep after the mission trip. I just thought, embarrassment's sake, that picture was a great one for us today. Uh, Grant was supposed to be wearing his mask, as you can see there. I don't know if Emily removed it or if he did, but they are conked out there and uh, catching up on some Z's. For others, for some of our young people, they weren't quite as worn out, so this is a picture of some of our young ladies. They're playing cards. They're enjoying some Dutch Blitz, one of my favorite card games, That even though I always lose, and uh, they are enjoying some entertainment time together. Uh, Jackson Osborne made a new friend while he was there in the airport, pretty good-looking dog there, and Jackson spent some time uh, meeting this new friend. While we're waiting, we can do all kinds of things. But I want to talk to us this morning about what what we do as God's people while we're waiting for our King to come. It's as if we are waiting in an airport terminal for something that we believe with all of our heart is going to happen. We don't know when. We don't know all the details of how it's going to work out. But we're looking forward to the day when we're going to get out of this place and we're going to go home. I love what Grant read this morning. I'm preparing a place for you, a home for you, that you may come and be where I am. But what do we do in the meantime? That's what Paul answers in our text this morning. What are we to be doing while we're waiting for Christ to return? So our theme today, while we're waiting for Christ's return let us and i'm going to give us four commands that have three subcommands under each of those commands there's a lot of commands here but there's a lot of instructions because we're to be busy in the time that we have remaining until we go to meet the lord face to face whether that is by death or whether that's by the day he splits wide the skies and comes back as our king we have a job to do And so let's look at these 16 rapid-fire commands. I'm going to try to organize them to help us think rightly about what we're seeing here. But again, keep in mind that picture of waiting for the day. Longing to leave this place, which is not our home. We're living in the airport. We've got somewhere better to be. The day is coming. The king is coming for his people. What do we do in the meantime? So, Paul writes, verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. The first thing that Paul says we're to do while we're in the waiting room is we are to be a people who respect our pastors. Now, I know this may seem like a very self-serving statement to make, and if it were not in the text, I would not be setting it before you for that reason. I could easily shrink back from this command, except for the fact that it is here in the text. It is a necessity for the people of God that we show love and respect, that we show affection and admonition, that we, that we show that our leaders are a gift from God to us. But what is the basis for this respect? I've talked for many years as I've tried to counsel folks in the area of, of broken relationships, and, and and the issue is often a loss of trust or respect in those situations. And and I've tried to help people to understand that there are two kinds of respect in the world, that there is a respect that is earned, and there is a respect that must be given. And you will actually never arrive at the respect that must be earned until you're willing to give the respect that must be Given. In this case, the basis for the respect is that this is the gift that God has given to his church. These leaders, these pastors, these elders, these overseers, we believe that's all the, the same office. And, and, and the idea being because they are the gift of God, because they have been given this role in the church by God's grace, that there is a respect that must be given in order that we can then grow to the place where we have a respect that's been earned. If you get that out of whack, you will never understand what Paul is talking about here. And you'll never understand God's value in relationships in terms of this kind of respect. I've talked with kids about this over the years. As they're struggling with respect for their parents. I've talked about this with parents as they're struggling with respect for their kids. That because of the relationship, there's a respect that must be given in order for there to be a respect that can be earned. So what is the basis for the respect here? He gives it right there in the text to us. If you look at it again, there's three things that he references in relation to the respect that we're to have for our leaders, for our pastors in our churches. First of all, we respect them because of their work in the word. Because of their labor among you. Now, I know how we think. The pastor only works one day a week, right? The rest of the week we don't know what that guy does, plays golf, tiddly wings. So I don't, I don't know what that guy does, but we all know we only see the pastor working one day a week. And, and sadly, sadly, there are many pastors that have caused that to be a, a, a preconceived notion about pastoral ministry. But we understand very clearly here that pastors have been called to a a labor. And this is this word labor here is, is talking about an intense physical activity that causes the pouring out of sweat and blood and tears. This is hard work that he's talking about here. This is no cake job. This is difficult labor that is being done on behalf of the Lord among his people. We are to respect our pastors because of their work. And primarily that work is taking place in the word of God. Laboring in the word of God. As it talks about in 1 Timothy 5. Let the elders, the pastors who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor. Especially those who labor. Same word here. Who labor, who pour out blood, sweat, and tears in their preaching and their teaching. But that is their primary labor and it's deserving of respect secondly though it's not just their work in the word we are to respect our pastors for their willingness to lead if you've ever been in leadership you know that when you stick your head up to lead you're risking getting it chopped off if you move out in front of the crowd, you're risking somebody behind you throwing stones. Leadership is a always in every venue a difficult thing, but a necessary thing. Someone has got to lead. And so we see 1 Timothy chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, again, overseer, pastor, elder, synonymous terms in the New Testament. If anyone aspires to this office, he desires a noble task but just because it's noble doesn't mean it's not difficult leadership decisions will be criticized there will be difficulties that will emerge again jesus didn't promise us it was going to be easy he promised us it would be troublesome and difficult we respect our pastors for their work in the word for their willingness to lead but also and this is where it gets hard We respect our pastors for their warnings from the Lord. He uses a word here, this word admonish, and that's a word we don't tend to use very much. But the word basically means a warning. Now, it's not a harsh warning. It's a it's a gentle warning, but it's also a forceful warning. It's the picture of a man taking the words from scripture and setting them before God's people and saying, be warned. Yes, be encouraged. I remember many years ago uh, 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 that, that someone was uh, upset with some of the teaching that, that I was doing and they, and they came to me and said, it just seems like you're always bringing us these, these warnings and I, and I just want to leave church feeling encouraged. I just want to be uh, built up every Sunday and, and, and I took that to heart because I felt like maybe I've gotten out of balance in this and, I, and I've, tr- I've tried to ask the Lord to help me in that. But, but I want to say this to you. One of the roles of pastors is to warn God's people. There are cliffs off of which we can fall as the people of God. And so as we looked a few weeks ago at the first part of chapter four in this text and the warning about sexual immorality and the rampant destruction that it is doing in the church, there has to be a warning given That we flee from sexual immorality. That we don't don't just wink at it or act like it's no big deal. Warnings must be given. They're given for the good of God's people. Second Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul encourages his young protege Timothy. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Folks, I want to say this to us. This word is in so many ways out of season in the current cultural moment. People do not want to hear the preaching of the word of God. They want preaching that will itch, that will scratch their itch. Bible says they have itching ears. They want to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to hear what they don't want to hear. But our call is to reprove, to rebuke and exhort. Notice that balance. Exhort and encourage rebuke and warn it's got to be both and it's got to be both of those things in balance with complete patience and teaching speaking of patience that's the next part of our outline this morning not only are we while we're in the waiting room called to respect our pastors we are also called to rehearse our patience now he gives again several rapid fire commands here and they're and they're related each one of these in these verses uh, 14 and 15 each of these are related to folks in the church that are just difficult to deal with. Now I know we don't have any of those here at Corinth. Praise God. We're just all easygoing, easy to get along with folks. But let's imagine what it would be like if we had some difficult people among us, some folks that kind of tended to rub us the wrong way, some personalities that we could get at odds with, here's what we're talking about. We're called to rehearse our patience. He says, be patient with them all. Literally be long-suffering with them all. Who are we talking about? Well, first of all, he's bringing A warning to the wayward. Now, I know here in the ESV that that it it says that uh, we are to admonish. There's that word again, to warn, admonish the idle. Now, if you look at your footnote, though, you'll notice that that word "warn" could also be translated disorderly or undisciplined. And when we hear the word "idle," we think lazy. But that's it's more than that. The word here, the Greek word, is really talking about a person who is out of step or who is disorderly. It's a it's a military term for someone who is trying to who is not operating within their rank. They're not they're not lining up in formation as they're supposed to do. They are they are out of sync with the rest of the cavalry. That's the picture of what we're seeing here. And so we're talking about those who maybe have all kinds of different things going on, but they're causing problems within the church. They're dissentious. They're constantly grumbling and complaining. They are in any number of different ways that we could think about. They're wayward. They're not walking in line with the clear teachings of Christ. And they're ca- it's causing trouble in the body. And Paul says, admonish them, warn them. Again, this is a gentle warning. This is not a harsh warning. This is a gentle warning, but it's also a forceful warning. Admonish them, warn those who are wayward, who are getting out of step with the things of the Lord. Again, this, this warning can take place in many different venues, but I want to talk for just a moment about those who would have the constant temptation to stir up dissension. Dissension whether it be through gossip or grumbling or constantly being a wedge between relationships. Titus chapter three, Paul encourages Titus in this way. He says, as for a person who stirs up division or or dissension after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. If you go and read the rest of that context, you see why he says that. Now, that sounds like a harsh admonition. Have nothing more to do with him, but notice the grace. The grace of the, of the warning. Warn him once. Warn him twice. And then having nothing more to do with him doesn't mean necessarily to shun him for the rest of your days, but make clear that his divisiveness is causing us not to be able to be in fellowship with one another warn him as a brother and then as matthew 18 would say to us warn him as a brother and then if he will not repent of his divisiveness then treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector treat treat him as you would an unbeliever because he's acting like an unbeliever and a lot of times here's what we do well you know that's just how they are don't we do that that's just how they are well we know that that's just that's just how they are While we're allowing them to continue in the kind of sin that brings destruction. Not just in their life, but in the life of the body. And Paul is saying to us, allow that not to continue. Warn the wayward, warn the divisive. Because you love them. We also rehearse our patience with the weary, and I've said it's by wooing the weary. He says, encourage the faint hearted or the the timid, those who are literally weak in their spirits. They are struggling. They are weary with the things of this world. They're weary with their physical health struggles. They're weary with their broken relationships. They're just worn out. And he's saying it's time for us to to woo them back to the things of God, to encourage them, to, to build them up, which sounds a whole lot easier than it actually is. Because for those who are truly weary, oftentimes... They're upset by words of encouragement. I don't want to hear that. Do you see what a wreck my life is right now? I, I don't want to hear your words of encouragement. So, how are we then to encourage them? I think Hebrews 12 gives us a great a model for how we're to encourage those who are worn out in their walk with the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 1 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How are we to run? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. That means think deeply about him. Fix your eyes upon him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. That's the same word in our text this morning. So that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Remind yourself of Christ. So that you might not get discouraged by your current trials. Remind yourself of his trials. And so here's the sweet medicine that God has given us when we are interacting with those who are weary and we're trying to woo them back to the things of the Lord, what we're we're really going to sit before them is not just, you can do it, man. That's the encouragement that we often give. You can do it when the reality is, if you're in the depths of that, you know full well you can't do it. Hebrews 12 gives us the right medicine that we would instead say not, you can do it, man, but consider what Christ has done. Consider the cross. Consider that your debt has been paid. Consider that your king is preparing a place for you. Consider that this is not all that there is. Consider the hostility that came against him. Consider that he bore your sin and your death on his cross so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. What are we saying here? What we're saying here is remind yourself and remind one another of the gospel. In the midst of our discouragement, remind one another of the gospel that your sin debt has been paid in full by Christ at his cross. So at the end of the day, while we may have many discouraging circumstances, we have nothing to ultimately be discouraged about. Because our king is coming. So we warn the wayward, we woo the weary. And then we walk with the weak. What's the difference between the weary and the weak? Here, weak, I take this as a spiritual weakness. This is generally those who are young in the faith or have not matured in their faith. That's, I think, I'm taking it the same way Paul talks about the weaker brother in Romans 14. and This idea of those who have not uh, matured in their faith, who are still very young in their faith. And, and that is the kind of weakness I think he's referring to here. And again, there's challenges just like with real physical children especially at kind of that preschool type age which we have so many of right now there's challenges there and the same thing being true in the spiritual life spiritual preschoolers can be very challenging there is a lack of maturity there is a lack sometimes of the knowledge of the word of god There is a lack of understanding how their interactions and their relationships impact the whole body. There's a whole lot of lack there, but there's that's why he says help the weak. And literally the word help there means come alongside them and hold them up. You can imagine somebody who's just recovered from surgery and they're for the first time they're taking their first steps out of the bed and the the nurse comes alongside and kind of holds on to their arm that's the picture here hold them up walk along with them don't leave them to their own devices and we oftentimes in the church have done this so wrongly because we've thought let them figure it out on their own And that's dangerous. Again, think about that preschooler who's learning to walk for the first time. Do you not take them by the hand? No parent just sits back and goes, well, let them figure it out on their own. Their first time on the steps, just let them figure it out on their own. If they fall on the steps, that's their own problem. That's how we oftentimes react in the spiritual life, within the body. We see a a new believer or someone who's immature in their faith struggling, and we kind of have this mentality, well, that's their problem. And the Bible is calling us to walk with the weak. Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What's the result of that? Notice this. Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What's that saying? Saying this simply, remind yourself of the gospel. As you're dealing with the wayward and the weary and the weak, remind yourself of the gospel and remind your brothers and sisters of this gospel. We have a great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness, who is urging us, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Well, we take him at his word. This patience is it's the fruit of the Spirit. Through the Spirit's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things, there is no law. And here Paul is calling us to be a patient people who bear with one another in love. And if you think that sounds easy, you're missing the picture. Love is hard. Love costs the Son of God his life. And to truly love one another, it will cost us our lives as well. So while we're waiting, while we're in the waiting room, we respect our pastors. We rehearse our patience. We rejoice in our praying. I have to get into light speed here to make it through this. We're going to try. We rejoice in our praying. I love these verses. Just rapid fire here. He's calling us to say, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What does it look like for us to rejoice in our praying? First of all, it means that we're going to choose joy over jealousy. So often in our relationships, especially in the body of Christ, it's so easy to look at others and to grow jealous, to grow jealous of their gifts or of what God has provided for them or their family situation or what any number of things. We begin to compare ourselves with one another and, and jealousy begins to rear its ugly head and brings division in relationships. When what God is calling us into is a joy that is not dependent upon our circumstances or how much we have or don't have. Paul says, I've learned to be content whatever my circumstances. What's the secret of his contentment? It's the gospel. The secret of his contentment was the gospel. Hebrews thirteen five. Keep your life free from love of money and be content. There's the secret. Be content with what you have. For he, the Lord, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you till you will be with me. So we choose joy over jealousy. We also rejoice in our praying by choosing perseverance over petering out. Here he says, pray without ceasing. And sometimes we get the wrong idea here of that, that verse. Uh, pray without ceasing doesn't mean that we're 24-7 on our knees before the Lord. It doesn't mean that we're constantly mumbling, mumbling prayers under our breaths. It means, as one author said, we're just keeping the receiver off the hook which our young people won't understand that, but you used to have a phone that you could hang up on, on, a, on a little receiver. You, know, you would put it on there. And that's why you hung up the call. And this picture of leaving it off the hook means the line's always open. And not only is the line always open, but we're persevering in our prayers. We're continuing to pray, even though we may not see the answer that we're wanting in, in the moment. We may not see the fulfillment of it in in the season, but we're continuing to pray because we're continuing to trust the God to whom we're praying. That our praying is not based upon our ability, it is based upon His. So we follow Ephesians 6, which encourages us to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, and to that end to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, persevering in our prayers not giving up and finally we rejoice in our praying by choosing gratitude over grumbling i've said this to us before church but i'm so convinced one of the greatest thermometers for our christian lives one of the greatest indications of our walk with the lord and where we are with him is this issue of gratitude and thanksgiving you can see the spiritual temperature of a person in their words and how they talk about others and their circumstances. If it's characterized by grumbling and complaining, you, you obviously, you see there's a problem there that needs to be addressed. But when a life is overflowing with thanksgiving, you see the marks of Christ there. Colossians 4 encourages us to continue steadfastly in prayer. Keep praying, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This is our call. And finally this morning, finally as we're in the waiting room, we are called upon to review our preaching. To remember that which has been set before us in the word Now, there's a lot in these last few verses, and I don't have time to get down into the nitty-gritty of it. Let me say just a couple of quick things. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. That has been a phrase that has been interpreted so many different ways. Well, pastor, you're quenching the Spirit if you're preparing your sermons. You ought to just get up there on Sunday morning and just give whatever God gives you. And I've told you for years, church, if we believe that God is any less involved in the pastor's preparation than he is in his presentation, we are misunderstanding what this whole preaching thing is. If you really want me to try one Sunday to just get up here and give you whatever God gives me, you'll see why this pastor needs to spend hours and hours in his study because all of you be going, dude, get back in the study. We don't want that anymore. That's garbage. Because it's the preparation. The sermon has to work upon the preacher before it can work upon the people, and that takes time. And so, this idea that that we would just spontaneously, we somehow we've wrongly understood that we we've thought the Spirit can only operate in spontaneous moments, and that's not the picture that we find in Scripture at all. The Spirit is constantly at work. So, what then does it mean? Not to quench the Spirit. Literally, it's to put out the fire of the Spirit. What does it mean? I think it's right here in the context. How do we quench the Spirit? How do we put out the fire of the Spirit in our churches? By not respecting our pastors, by not rehearsing our patience, by not rejoicing in our praying. It's right here in the context. You don't have to jump out of here and go to some other place and try to figure out what's Paul talking about. Read the statement in its context and see what it means to quench the Spirit is we're not walking in these things he's given us to do in the waiting room. Amen. And the last of these being reviewing our preaching. What does that mean? First of all, we need to compare every word that's given to God's word. I have encouraged you for years and I continue to plead with you to be like the Bereans. Who in Acts 17, it says, Now these Jews, those in Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word that Paul preached with all eagerness. But then notice this. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they received Paul's preaching with eagerness. But then they went to look to the scriptures themselves to see if these things were so. And I've said to you for years, don't just take my word for it. If all you ever hear of the truths of God's word comes from this mouth, you are going to be spiritually lacking. My encouragement to you is go and see about it for yourself. As Reading Rainbow taught us as a kid, don't just take my word for it. Go read the book for yourself. And if at any juncture you find me presenting something that doesn't line up with this book, we need to have a conversation. You need to come and admonish me. You need to help me to see where I've been out of line. That I might get back in line because I'm not a perfect man. And I'm urging you, do not put your faith in your pastor. Put your faith in Jesus. And his word is faithful my word may have errors in it. His does not. We also review our preaching by clinging to the wonderful treasures of our faith. In faith, we want to cling to what God is setting before us. It's this, I love Psalm 19. Uh, and, and it encourages us as we think about the word of God. More to be desired are they the words of God than gold. Gold more to be desired even than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I've encouraged you for years, go on the treasure hunt every day. Open the word of God early in the morning and ask the Lord, what do you have for me today? And there will be days that he will radically blow your mind with what he reveals to you through his word. And there will be days when you feel like you came away with nothing. But don't be discouraged by that. Keep going on the treasure hunt. The gold miner does not go into the cave every day expecting to come out with an armload, but he keeps going in day after day because he knows that perhaps one day. He will, and that's my encouragement to you. Keep searching the Scriptures. Keep reading the Word of God. Keep looking for those treasures and pleading with the Lord to show you great and wonderful things that you've not yet seen. And then when you find them, share them with others. See, one of our problems in reading the Bible is we think it's all about us. Oftentimes, God is giving you something that's meant for the edification of others. Finally, a final warning and admonition is this. We review our preaching by cutting out the wicked trash in our lives in repentance. A final encouragement there. Why does he end this section by saying, abstain from every form of evil? Keep away from it. Get it out of your lives. Don't let it have a foothold. Don't don't give it an audience in your life. I know how tempted we are to say, well, it's just a little sin. It's just a little indulgence. It's just a little poison. And Paul's saying here, abstain. Get it out of your life in repentance. Ask God to show you the sin that remains and be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's what the old Puritans used to say. Jesus said from the very beginning of his ministry, it still applies today, Matthew 4. From that time, from the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus began to preach and here was his message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That sin that remains, that unconfessed sin that's continuing to, to hinder your spiritual walk. Would you want to be found engaged in that when Christ returns? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The coming of our king is imminent, And holiness matters. And I want to leave you where I left you last week. Just think 2 Peter 3 just sums up so much of what we've been seeing in Thessalonians. 2 Peter 3 Peter writes, since all these things, all that we experience in the here and now are thus to be dissolved. This world, as we know, will be burned up with the fires of God's judgment. Since all these things are to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be, church? What sort of people ought you to be, pastors? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What sort of people 1 Thessalonians 5 kinds of people. People who respect their pastors, who are rehearsing our patience with one another day by day, who are continually rejoicing in our praying and persevering in our prayers. People who are continually reviewing our preaching and the truths from God's Word that are being presented to us. That's what sort of people Lives of holiness and godliness as we wait for and hasten the coming of the day of God. Church, we are in the terminal. We are in the waiting room. We need to begin to live like it. And living like it does not mean just standing around slack jawed with our eyes to the heavens waiting for him to split wide the skies. That's what his disciples were doing in Acts chapter one when the angels came and said, hey, guys, he gave you a mission, didn't he? Let's get to work. While we're waiting, we have a lot to do. How will these 16 commands that we've explored this morning, how do they need to be put into practice in your life this week? This is so eminently practical. The coming of Jesus is not just a theological concept. It is the most life-defining, practical piece of doctrine that I could ever set before you. The King is coming. How will that define your life this week? With that thought, let's bow together in prayer. Father, we're about to come to your table. This table reminds us that we have a king. And our king has invited us to come and to enter into fellowship with him. And in that fellowship, there is a sweetness beyond compare. And Father, as we prepare to come to the table this morning and to share these elements, God, I plead with You that You would help us to take seriously what Your Word has set before us this morning. Lead us in paths of repentance this morning for Your name's sake and for the good of Your church. Lord, convict us of our sin and remind us of Your grace. Your grace is no excuse for our sin. It is simply the remedy for it. May we look to you in faith as we prepare to come to your table today. We ask this in Jesus' name.